Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. In 2020, Sharon White was the first ever woman to become chair of John Lewis and Partners, the largest employee-owned business in the UK. In 2022, she was named the UK's most influential black person in the Power List Awards. She was the first woman to lead the UK's media regulator, Ofcom, and she came to that position after a distinguished career in Treasury, the Department for International Development and the World Bank. In the week of International Women's Day, I sat down with Sharon to discuss her career journey and her views on how to work towards greater gender equality in the workplace and beyond. We were joined by Kelly Beaver, the first female chief executive of Ipsos in the UK and Ireland, who shared findings from a new survey from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and Ipsos looking at global attitudes to gender equality. In this episode, you'll hear that conversation recorded live from an event for the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. Thank you. And it is brilliant to be with you all again. I was saying to Julia in the dressing room that we have quite a few frequent flyers who do tend to come to this event on a regular basis each year. So it's great. And this is the fifth year now that we've worked in partnership with Rosie and Julia and the team at Jules. So it's brilliant to be back and sharing some of the results from this year's study. So as always, it's not International Women's Day without a quick run through what the gender inequality data is telling us around the world today. And this is the survey of 32 countries. We have online studied over 22,000 adults between the ages 16 and 74. You can see on the map the countries that are covered. And the last collection happened on the 6th of January. So it's relatively fresh data. You'll have seen some of it published in the newspapers yesterday. Top line findings, really. Gender inequality, no surprise, is still some way from being solved. Seven in 10 people globally told us that they believe in their country there is still inequality between women and men in social, economic or indeed political contexts. Some of the countries where this was quite high, India, eight in 10, and then for some others, it was much more the lower end of the spectrum, but still a majority, Portugal, five in 10. Women are much more likely to say this than men. And you will see that as we go through some of the data this evening. But last year, I got quite a heckling from Julia because I had quite a negative presentation. So I have learnt my lesson. I have learnt my lesson and tonight I have some positive information to share before I do my usual and tell you all the negative stuff. 
But on positives, first of all, there are some signals that things are getting better and people are more optimistic about the progress that is being made. Over the last 12 months, there have some been some really significant moments where female leadership has came to the fore, whether they are in sporting events. I could not not mention the lionesses, but many, many other really momentous moments in a 12 month period. And the British population and the global population, we are seeing rising optimism. For example, one in two now believe that gender equality will be achieved in their lifetime. This has risen. Yes, it's by six, six percentage points, but it has risen. I told you optimism. We also, one in two now think life is better for young women today than for their parents' generation. That is something that is new and different. And then also one in two think that gender equality is good for both women and men. And we ask this question, we say, do you think gender equality mostly benefits women, mostly benefits men, or benefits both the same? Now, half believe that it's benefiting both the same. So that's the end of my optimism. Because, so I'll come back to some, I promise you. I promise you, because there are some, also some quite disturbing findings from the data in that there is a bit of a reaction, a negative backlash from some of the progress that has been made around gender equality. And I was saying to Sharon in the green room before, you see some of this on the press, but actually it's the first time we're seeing it come through in general public data. For example, so this is some questions that we've been asking before COVID in 2019 and also then subsequently in 2022 and 2023. And we give us a series of statements. And one of the statements is when it comes to giving women equal rights with men, things have gone far enough in my country. This has shifted. This has shifted from four in 10 and it is now half of people believe this is the case. But we can see the underlying trend here is also Men are more likely to say this than women. And there's also a bit of a difference between those who are in the younger age groups than in our older age groups. Gen Z are more likely to say this than some of the baby boomers. It is quite telling. And there are differences now between young people's attitudes towards gender equality and things being perceived as going far enough and those who are in the older age categories. And we see that through some other data points as well. And there are signals of a lack of male allyship coming through. For example, one in two now agree that men are expected to do too much to support gender equality. You know, in my household, one in two also believe that uh, men are expected to do too much to support gender equality. And we see this again, men are more likely to perceive this than women. But there are more. One in two now believe that steps toward gender equality are leading to discrimination against men men more likely to perceive this than women, and also younger people more likely to perceive this than their older counterparts. Some of the countries where this is most extreme, actually some of the Latam countries, we see this being most extreme. Um, mm -hmm. And when you ask men this question, it's as high as two and three who believe this is the case. So there are some real challenges and you can see some of the sentiment has shifted here. But there's a real paradox because whilst male allyship seems to be not at a particularly high ebb, there's a real need, and people know this when you ask them, three and five say that women won't achieve gender equality without men taking action. So there are, of course, still challenges beyond some of those perceptions. And we, again, we've dug into some of those in our data, things that still need overcame. 
day-to-day incidents of discrimination which are still quite significant. So two in five say that they witnessed at least one of the following examples of discrimination, gender discrimination in the last year. One in three, for example, say that they heard a friend or family member make a sexist comment. The highest, the countries with the highest proportion of people saying this, they were the Latin countries. One in five, gender discrimination in the workplace, they saw that. And this won't be a surprise to you, but the countries where the highest proportion were saying this were the UAE, Saudi Arabia. And then one in 10 say that they've seen someone sexually harassing a woman. And for those countries, we are talking about India in particular as one and some of the Latin countries as well. So this is not all countries far away from us, actually, even though those are the top end. Three in 10 in the UK have witnessed at least one of those examples. So, that, and it is more significant, six in 10 in Gen Z say that they have seen that and witnessed that. So why are people not taking action? And we tried to dig into this a little bit in the data. Why don't people take action? Why don't they speak out? What stops them? And some of the smaller scale answers that we get are things like, well, one in 10 say there's nothing that they can do that will really make a difference. And one in 10 say they don't know how to talk about gender equality or what steps to take. This sense of powerlessness or a lack of awareness. But the most substantive issue that comes up and this has risen, is that people have fears about what will happen to them if they speak out. And so between 2017, when we asked this question, and 2023, when we asked it again, we've seen a rise from a quarter right through now to a third of people saying that this is the case. And there are differences by geography here. It's as high as one in two who said they have a fear of speaking out for the, the countries in MENA and also in the BRIC countries. But when you come to even uh, the US, North America, and also European countries, it is still three in, t- three in 10 who say that they have a fear of speaking out. And there's the young old divide again. Almost half of young people say the reason they don't do take action or, or speak out is because they have a fear about what will happen to them as well if they do so. But back to the positive, <laughs> just for you, Julia. What, if anything, are people doing? And there, is some, there are some good things here. Six in 10 say that there are actions that you can take to promote gender equality. One and two say they've taken at least one action over the last year to help support gender equality. Three in 10 say they talk to friends and family about gender equality. One in five speak up when a family or friend, mem- a friend actually make a sexist comment. And then in the workplace, one in five say they talk about gender equality at work. And it's exactly the same proportion there for men as it is for women. So three key things to take away from tonight. People recognise gender equality exists. You saw seven in 10 at the beginning of the presentation. And they do think things are getting better. There is some optimism there, but at the expense of men, but that's the concern that's coming through. There are still fundamental barriers to, under- to overcome some of those day-to-day actions and discriminations that I, I talked about. And actually, some of the progress that has been made on gender equality is causing some level of discomfort and tension as we're breaking through and making some, some impact and some change. And then finally, people are taking steps to promote equality, but more still needs to be done on male allyship and also reducing that fear of taking action.
We're going to have a conversation with Kelly a little bit later, but before we get there, Sharon, I wanted to open up with you just by saying International Women's Day yesterday. Yeah. What were you thinking about? What are the issues on your mind for women? So it's interesting. So yesterday for us, we were we were a very peculiar company, certainly those of you who shop in John Lewis or shop in Waitrose, because we are, um, we're a really big company, but we are owned by everybody who works there. So normally we're not part of the sort of normal reporting on kind of gender statistics. And this year for the first time, we kind of gave out data to the kind of people who make all the assessments. And we were voted, I was very proud of this, we were voted the top private company for female leadership. So we have a majority female board and we have a majority female executive team. I'm chair, my deputies are female, my CFO is female. Um, I mean, it's terrible. I mean, I do find it quite hard to recruit men, which is kind of all my issues around gender balance in the workplace is actually, is actually sort of how do we make sure we have a decent balance. So it's kind of thinking partly work context. Um, actually, Kelly's data is fascinating because um, this sort of this whole theme of I'm not sure whether I would describe it as a backlash or whether I would describe it as the fact that we have a, to have a different conversation given the sort of rising concerns, particularly rising concerns amongst um, amongst men, amongst young boys, that somehow gender equality has gone too far. And I'm the mother of an 18 year old who is a kind of passionate feminist and a 16 year old who doesn't understand why this is an issue and is definitely in the camp of feeling that when he goes into the jobs market, he's going to be discriminated against because he's a boy and a man and nobody's talking about male issues. So I definitely think there's a different... So I was thinking home and I was also thinking some pride at work, although a lot more to do. Well, let's come to both because I think we should just um, mark the fact that those... John Lewis statistics about women on the board, woman chair, woman deputy chair, majority uh, woman-led uh, executive team. Uh, we shouldn't gloss over that because they are remarkable statistics. I mean, we did get the uh, FTSE Leaders Review last week and that told us that only 19% of FTSE 100 boards have women chairs, so 81% don't. Only 9% of women CEOs are in the FTSE 100, so vast, vast majority have men. And women have just top 40% of board seats and a third of executive leadership teams. So John Lewis is distinctly different. Now, obviously, its ownership structure is different because the employees own the company, but that wouldn't necessarily give you a woman-led company in quite that way. Has there been a program of deliberate action to get there? It's a, it's a difficult en- a question to answer very simply because in any very large historic organisation, um, we, we still have all sorts of cultural issues. So we are majority, as a business, we're majority female because we're in retail. So actually many, many, vast majority of um, our partners, our employees are you know, they work on they work on a till, they work in a distribution centre. So it's a relatively over female, lower paid, classic retail. And then the business historically has always had a very strong social purpose and is a democracy. There's all sorts of kind of interesting peculiarities about the model, but has been through phases of being actually very command and control and quite dirigiste and I would say a very strongly male culture. 
which we're now sort of rebalancing. So in the very early days, um, the business was founded by somebody called John Speed and Lewis. And his wife was one of the first women who went to Oxbridge, obviously didn't get a degree and um, was very, very sort of active in female education. And lots, there's lots of kind of documentation that it was she who was actually behind this peculiar ownership model rather than her husband. But certainly when I joined the business, the Waitrose leadership team was all male or white. The John Lewis team, interestingly, had always had a history of having women in the leadership roles, but actually very, very sort of recessive in terms of ethnicity. So female equality is a, it's an absolute kind of passion of mine. So partly this has been myself and then my team sort of having a different conversation that's trying to bring everybody along in step rather than this sense that, that there's a sort of progressive wing of the business and a, and a wing of the business that's been more traditional. And that's a hard, hard balance to maintain. And do you get any sense that within the business there is this trend that Kelly's picked up in the data, which you've picked up amongst your own sons of people thinking, well, this is all very well, but enough now? Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you unpack that conversation? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So I definitely, when, I, when, I, when we were appointed a female deputy chair, I definitely had emails saying, oh, my goodness, there are too many, you know, there are too many women running the business. Um, so there's, you know, there's, I mean, there's definitely, because it's, it's just fear that people, people have a view about what sort of normality and what success looks like. And that's why I think the conversation is so important. I, you know, even when I've, I've worked for women in the past who have also been incredibly nervous about appointing more women in senior positions because their own experience has been that they have felt less effective and less visible in a majority of women. And that's, that's partly historic, but these things come, come back and we're, we're potentially going into a phase which we're gonna to have to make some of these arguments afresh um, as, as though it's for the first time. And you came to John Lewis out of uh, a variety of roles as your CV uh, took us through um, in, the, in the civil service. I mean, what's, what's the same and what's different, do you think, when it comes to thinking about gender equality, making change for gender equality, is one environment easier than the other? So I'd say, I mean, I've done a whole weird series of jobs and <laughs> none, of, none of them very planned. I'm always slightly embarrassed when, oh my God, all the things I've done. I mean, I, I, would, I would say there were maybe sort of three distinct phases, which are sort of linked to, in a sense, how much sort of control or how much influence I've been able to have, if that makes sense. So it was obviously a I don't know how many of you have ever worked in the civil service or government, possibly. Um, I, I, I should mean, at this point <laughs> ask if you were doing it by WhatsApp, we could have a, have a show of hands on that, but yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing about the civil service is that you are, you've got split accountability between a politician and officialdom. So even in quite senior roles, You've, you have more or less space to operate depending on whether your minister either doesn't care about the sort of makeup and the sort of management and the leadership and the culture in the department. Sometimes they care hugely. I've worked for everything. I've worked for ministers who have been incredibly supportive of efforts to um, rebalance. I have worked with ministers who have talked about the feminization of their advice and um, have basically sacked all the women 
of the fair, but they were ever very senior in the organisation. They just all sort of left bit by bit. And, um, and I've worked for ministers who have kind of actively taken steps to reduce things like flexible working and childcare support within the... So I've always, that phase has always been how much influence am I able to have and how much space have I got to operate depending on um, a politician who's all less progressive uh, than you, Julia. And then, and then was a regulator when I ran Ofcom, which um, some of you know regulates the media as well as telecoms. It was then another very distinct phase because part of our um, sort of legal duties were was to promote equality and diversity in the media. So that was a sort of extraordinarily interesting opportunity because my job was to um, chippy, encourage, carrot stick with you know, the BBC and ITV and sort of big media companies. And clearly, you, you know, you've got to make sure there's not, a, there's not a gap between how you're leading the organisation to be more diverse and what you're then, um, how you're then sort of hoping to chivvy a whole sort of sector to, to be more open, even when it doesn't feel like it's in their commercial interest. And then obviously John Lewis Partnership, I'm chairman, but it's a very, it's a very consultative, very democratic organisation. So. I've got a balance between, uh, in some ways, being quite sort of directive and quite influential in terms of recruitment, but also being very sort of sensitive to how you, how I'm trying to have a sort of facilitate and have a have a conversation where the whole organisation, but also our customers, who represent a certain slice of, you know, a certain slice of the UK, also feel. There's not a disjuncture between who we are as an organisation and how we show up to our customers. Just pulling back from John Lewis, the civil service, and looking at some of the very global roles that you've done, um, you obviously uh, had to think a lot about the UK's role in the world and particularly its uh, aid and development budget when you were at the relevant department and when you were at the World Bank. Looking at that sort of broad global context, how did you think then about gender equality issues? And one of the things it seems to me is it's quite hard to keep the attention mm. on gender equality in a world where there is so much going on, so much going wrong. You know, climate change, war, changing geopolitics, uh, you know, a, a difficult global economy, inflation, and the list goes on. I mean, what are your reflections about the world we're in and how we continue to advocate for uh, diversity and inclusion, even when there's a sense of impending crisis in so many areas? Uh, yeah, I mean, I sometimes think if maybe the language doesn't help us and maybe talking and stories do. So when I was, when I was involved in development, which now feels, it's before my first, it was about 19 years ago. So I'm, I'm kind of out of date from a sort of, day-to-day -day sort of work perspective. But actually so many of the issues were about girls. So this was the time when the World Bank was very, and the development community was very rightly focused on female empowerment was the language then. Because as today, girls going to school and particularly being able to make it into secondary school was such a massive unlock for sort of everything, for jobs, for having your kids later for better maternal health, better infant health. And even when you, know, you think about all the sort of geo crises or climate change, 
actually if you've got more women voices at the table. So I, mem I remember spending a lot of time in Uganda and visiting, visiting schools and talking about, you know, well, what happens when the 13-year-old girl has her period and suddenly she's at home for a week and missing, missing a, you know, um, a quarter of her school life. And, you know, obsessive, really important discussions about female male lose and you've got female lose as a teenage girl so that you've got privacy so that you can, you know, you can be clean and how do you avoid sexual harassment and all those issues. So girls staying in school is such a such a massive unlock and then obviously we've got the extreme now of what's happening in Afghanistan so I would you know I would talk about girls into school so when when you when we talk when my 16 year old 16 year old love in many ways lovely boy although I've got GCSEs this year <laughs> which is a total nightmare when he talks about feminism I, I'm not a feminist I'm proud not to be a feminist because that's anti-men well, I talked I talk to him about, do you know what's happening in Afghanistan? Do you know that if you're a girl, that you're, if you're born with ovaries, you can't go to school? Three weeks ago, you couldn't go to university. Now you're not in secondary school. Now you're not in primary school. That's happening today. And so that's why I think maybe diversity, maybe gender, maybe these words have become so sort of hackneyed and feeling as though there's a sort of industry associated with it that we've lost sight of what the root of this is you know my mother who left school when she was 11 because she was the eldest of nine followed by five boys and then three girls and every nightmare can i just think total nightmare. <laughs> every time her mother had a baby she had to leave school so she did my mother maybe did two or three three or four years of schooling in jamaica could kind of write couldn't read so and that's that's what sexism and a patriarchal society does it means that you don't go to school and you're in a manual job all your life let's come now to talk about your family background i mean you you grew up in the uk but the the daughter of uh jamaican immigrants can you tell us a bit about your family and when you might have first thought to yourself i'm being treated differently because I'm a girl? Was that something that you were conscious of growing up? I'm, I'm quite old, so I'm in my mid-50s. So I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and my parents came sort of late, late 50s, early 60s to the UK and met, met here. And I guess I was, was I conscious about the difference of being a girl or just conscious about the difference of being a, a different colour from almost everybody else I went to school with? So I was definitely conscious of the fact that my mother worked. And in the 1970s, basically nobody worked apart from black women. So I couldn't kind of, I remember going to school, like my first week and thinking, why is everybody going home for school lunch? Like who's at home to let them in? And then suddenly realizing that, um, you know, like 90% of the class went home because their mums so I had this like really weird thing of like, what do all these women do all day that they can that they can be at home and cook lunch? And then I had a few days thinking, actually, I hate school dinners, and maybe my mum should give up work so I can. <laughs> so I was like definitely conscious of women working, but I never felt like, gosh, I'm a girl that's been dis. Actually, this is not quite true. I never felt sort of in the wider world, I'm a girl that's been discriminated against. I was just very conscious that my parents having grown up in another country and that sense of sort of 
you know, do you belong, do you not quite belong, you're born in London, but you can't call yourself English because people don't, I mean, all of that weird stuff in the 70s. But I think being the, the gender thing was probably more interesting now you made me think, Julia, is probably more apparent at home. Right. Because of my mother's upbringing. So it was things like Sharon, my mum would say to me, and I've got an older brother who's four years older, and my mum would say, well, Sharon, you, you, need, you need to learn how to clean and um, wash your clothes and iron because when you get older, you're going to have to do your husband's laundry and clean the house. And I remember, like, I was about, I mean, I was a really weird kid growing up, like, really weird. And I used to say to my mum, yeah, but I'm going to get a job in a cleaner and I'm not cleaning anything. <laughs> I kind of look back and think, oh, my God. But I just, that whole, you know, my, when my mum went out to work and my brother and I were at home, kind of latchkey kids kind of thing, my mum would all, I know this is partly related to the fact that my brother was older, but my mother would always say to, me, to my brother, look after your sister. And I used to say, but why aren't you asking me to look after my brother? He's up to more trouble than I am. And, but it was just her kind of background. And I, just the person I was just was always batting that back. Um, and then I was very lucky school-wise. I went to non-selective state schools in East London, which were all girls from the age of 11 through to 18, um, which I have to say when I then encountered boys when I went to university, it was a sort of weird thing. But it was a very safe bubble, very high expectations, you know, this sense that, you know, you, you had, I mean, I didn't do science, but that whole thing of, you know, if you were in a mixed school, you would find it much more difficult to do chemistry and biology and physics to take your opportunities. Um, you know, teachers have always remember, they always said, never learn to type. Which I, which I never, which I now really regret, never learn, and learn how, <laughs> never learn how to type because otherwise you'll get a job typing. My, uh, in the Gillard uh, family home, we had a different experience. My uh, mother uh, forced my sister and I as teenagers to learn to touch type on an Olivetti manual typewriter. That's not really touch typing. Oh no, yeah, no, no, we did the full, you know, touch, touch typing. Uh, on the basis that a girl could always get a job if she could type. So uh, uh, the, the complete reverse come in, come in very handy um, in the years since. Talk to me about having described your background, where the birth of ambition came from, that you had that conversation with your mother. I've got a, I've got a vision in my mind's eye of you as a little girl sauntering past John Lewis stores saying to yourself, I'm going to run that one day. Is that, is that how it worked? <laughs> And actually, it's one of those many things I'm like highly suspicious of people who are really ambitious. Right. Highly suspicious of people who, you know, have the 15 year plan. Cause I, no, I said because you've met a lot of politicians. Is yeah. that right? That suspicion? It's very suspicious. I don't know. When I, was, when I was growing up, so I was quite sort of, I was a sort of quite nerdy, quite serious, quite sort of religious. I'm not at all. Well, I say so not ambitious, so I never had sort of, you know, sort of career aspirations in that way. So I always thought I was going to go off and be a refugee worker and do something that was sort of, that was kind of positive and helpful in the world. And I went to college, I studied economics, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do afterwards. Lots of my friends at the time were going off to sort of feel an accountant or a banker or a management consultant because obviously they're amazing jobs but all my friends were going off to these what I thought at the time were these terrible jobs <laughs> um, 
as accountants and bankers and management consultants. And I thought, well, I'm completely uninterested in the private sector. As I worked for a church for a year, where I kind of figured out what I wanted to do next, and a friend joined the civil service, and I thought, oh, that might be interesting for a couple of years because I could use my economics and I'm interested in politics. And I'm, re I'm really interested in public policy, which is one of the reasons I'm at the partnership, which is a kind of commercial enterprise with social impact. And I just kind of stayed for 30 years because no plan, I, you know, I just thought I'd have done 18 months or two years just because I was very lucky to have a variety of jobs. So I wouldn't describe myself as ambitious. I'd describe myself as kind of itchy to, to get things done and itchy to have impact. And that could be in a tiny way. It could be a conversation or it could be, you know, kind of big policy thing fascinated, encouraged, exhilarated by both. But I never had a plan, and even today, I think, I still think, I gosh, what am I going to do when I kind of grow up? <laughs> or when the kids finally leave homes, I, I just have never had a plan. And across that sort of, you know, lifetime journey, I mean, obviously now you are uh, very uh, noted in the UK, noted as a role model, noted as, as a role model for women, noted as a role model as a black person. Can you talk to me about how does that make you feel and looking as uh, the way that your career, sort of you wanting to do interesting and impactful things, do you view that as a contribution you're making also having an impact? Has that been something that you've been conscious of along the way? So I, for ages I found this really uncomfortable and I, and almost, I mean, this doesn't sound quite weird, almost a sort of degree of sexism about it. So when I was a civil service, the great thing is you're kind of below the radar screen, which is fantastic. Because obviously everything's sort of fronted, or sort of the public nature of the job is very much fronted by, by fantastic politicians. And when I, was, when I was appointed to Ofcoms, I hadn't even started the job. And it's the first time I sort of stepped into the sort of, oh my gosh, it's a, sort of suddenly more public. And I thought I'd get, I thought there might be a little bit of interest in who is the civil servant who's become a regulator. And there were a couple of pieces which were all about, here's a person who's a woman with kids and who's black who has a job. And I found it really insulting because I, I, just, I just thought suddenly I've been hit by a set of other people's labels. And I've always had this thing that whatever job you do, actually the most important thing is be, be good at your job and you know, be kind of vaguely competent. So I, sp I spent a long time kind of be feeling quite sort of uncomfortable about it. I'd, you know, I go, to, I go to media conferences to talk about, I don't know, the BBC regulation or you know, terrible things we were doing with BT or something to encourage broadband. And I could always guarantee the third or fourth question, which was basically, you know, how does it feel to be a black woman? Like, well, how does it feel to be you? What a question to ask. <laughs> and some of you will know there's a, there's, a, there's a fantastic interview that Sidney Poitier gave when he don't, you know, this was obviously like the hundredth time or something, or the thousandth time. And somebody had said to him, basically, what does it feel like to be an African-American actor? What does it feel like to be a black actor? And I'm paraphrasing. And he said, well, why are you asking me the question? Because you know what, I, I love theatre and I love reading and I love travel and I love my family and those are all amazing things to ask me about. 
why are you asking me about the colour of my skin? And so I kind of, I felt a degree of discomfort. And at the same time, I'm also conscious that there aren't enough people who, in the ordinary scheme of things, look like me, have my background, which is also about class as well as ethnicity and as well as about gender. And so I never, I hate the words of role model because the idea that you somehow you're going to represent half the population or represent, you know, the, the 7% of people who come from an ethnic minority background. But I'm definitely more comfortable and feel it's really important to use whatever voice I have to make it easier for the people behind me who are all your age to, for this conversation not to be interesting in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time. I'm going to invite Kelly to come back on stage now and we're going to um, uh, circle back to, to talking about some of the uh, research. The, the data clearly shows that there's, you know, the trend line was very, very obvious that there's growing concern about speaking out on women's rights. I mean, what, what do the two of you think might be driving that? I mean, we don't know from the research, so this is, you know, we're extrapolating. I think one of the challenges we face now is that it's not just warm words around gender equality. There are some real fundamental changes that people have to make, things like pay gap. So you can't just say nice warm words about improving gender pay gap anymore. You have to physically make the change. And so it's not just speaking out. There's a higher expectation about what you're expecting when you're talking about making something more equal. So I think we're into the structural changes that need made, and that's a bit more challenging. And I think it comes with more, not backlash, but certainly uh, more of that discomfort that you're seeing coming through in some of the data about speaking out, but also feeling that men are being disadvantaged as women are receiving more advantage. I think as we've made practical progress, and there is practical progress, you know, if you, I know, I don't know the international data, but the UK data, obviously for terms of women's girls' achievement in school, proportion of women going to university, graduating, pay gap is almost invisible, except at the point at which a woman has her first child and so on. And then obviously, partly through non-executive appointments, if you look at actually the complexion of many balls, they look radically different to, you know, even five, 10 years ago. I think as we've made those, that practical progress, which you know, rooms like this celebrate, I think we have been naive in making the assumption that everybody's on the same journey and everybody has the same understanding of the rationale yes. and the why. And I think, I mean, I'm a very positive, very glass half full person. I think what your data shows and what I certainly encounter in my life is that, well, actually we've got to, we've got to go back to have a different sort of conversation about the girl who's not going to school because she might get harassed by the boys at school or because there's no separate loo for her to feel safe and clean when her period comes. Mm. So I think, and I think we've got to think about the language that we use. I think there's something potentially jolted in that association of gender equality being women at the expense of men. One of the things, I mean, in terms of uh, the, the conversation that the community is having, and I agree with you, we've got to find, always be looking for better ways to have the conversation. But one of the things we do know uh, is that there is a considerable backlash on 
social media. There are all sorts of very regressive attitudes. Um, won't use any of the names, but people who are seeking to make themselves a celebrity with a very particular form of masculinity where they're very much foregrounding their desire to subjugate women and to seek attention on that basis. I mean, you know, you were talking to us before about your um, experience at Ofcom where, you know, you would have dealt with, I'm sure, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of complaints about TV and radio programs. And yet there's this sort of wild west of social media happening at the same time. I mean, do you feel that there's a connection between that and what we might be seeing in the data and what can we really do about that sort of wild west? And I think it's the thing about how, whether we're confusing the channel with the debate. So obviously the obviously the, the the channels and the and the access of social media means these things go viral and you know you think oh my god that's grim and then you suddenly realise it's had like seven hundred and fifty million views but actually I don't think that's the issue I think the issue is what's the conversation we're having with our young boys and our teenage boys that in the absence of having a healthy balanced positive conversation with them that they are, and these boys have got women who have got mothers, mostly working mothers, if you look at the data, mm -hmm. and they are absorbing and attracted to a combination of physicality, misogyny that they don't recognise as misogyny, and a sense of this being a rebalancing because nobody's talking about men and men's rights. And so for me, there's not, there's not a regulatory issue. It's not about, because some of, you know, the the person whose name we cannot mention. I mean, well, I don't know what Elon Musk has done. But I mean, he's not, you know, he's been banned from, you know, many of the sites, which is, so I am much more interested in how we, who's filling the gap and who's talking about boys, not because I'm not, as I say, a passionate advocate for women having all the opportunities we should have. It's a vacuum that's being filled. So let's address that. Let's not have a sort of distracting debate about online safety bill and whether new media should be regulated in the same way as traditional media. And to me, it misses the point. There is an interesting cohort effect happening for that early generation, that generation that takes you up to about age 26, where for them, they see lots of women actually in quite senior roles in society and it does look like things are more equal. So they, they will be, for all intents and purposes, living through what is a very different time and will not necessarily see you talk about the, um, the, sort of the water and sanitation hygiene issues in some of the developing communities as something that is fundamental about women's rights and makes it different for boys versus girls in an educational setting. So I think there is something not just a normal lifestyle effect or life cycle effect that we see when people move up. You, you really see equality hit or inequality hit when you have a child. That's when you realise you're a woman <laughs> and things are quite different for you than they are for a man. But these other, other types of effect would you experience because of the time you lived in? Those ones are very different for your young boys, my daughter, um, who is alpha, generation alpha. I think we have to have more sophisticated and more delineated conversation conversation. Yes. So I mean when I look at your numbers I think actually the data for Latin America actually oh. I'd want to see what the 20 year trend data is because actually there are 
that I... the, the really difficult piece is that there will not be 20 years of or the 10 years later because I don't know such a thing because if these questions were not asked yeah. for 20 years mm. and so the trend data that exists with us is about five years you will get from some of the big national statistics surveys some fundamental pieces about how people lived and worked in those times but the kind of questions we're asking today they were total taboo and even for us when we do research in places like Saudi Arabia we, we have to really double check we're allowed to ask some of these questions. Uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight and please thank Sharon and Kelly. Thank you. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.